Welcome to the iMatter Podcast, future-proof your business, career, teams, and organization. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira, and I'm speaking today with Ian Berry. Ian and I have known each other for ages. I think it's been more than 15 years now, and I, and I love speaking with Ian because I know that he, he always thinks in depth, he speaks with wisdom, and he's got this great gift to distill really complicated and complex ideas really into their essence and in a way that people can understand easily. In fact, just an hour ago, as I was getting ready for this conversation with Ian, I got an email in my inbox from the International Institute of Directors and Managers, where Ian is an expert contributor and it directed me to a short audio clip where he talks about the difference between fake leaders and real ones. I mean, I learned a lot in just two minutes, and it's amazing how much how much wisdom Ian could impart in a couple of minutes. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I know that Ian's motto is changing what's normal, and he's all about leadership, leading yourself, leading others, and leading change. And I'm passionate about leadership as well, and I'm passionate about individuals and leveraging the power of individuals. And I think that we've got quite a lot in common. So so welcome, Ian. Thanks so much, Gian, and, and lovely to spend some time with you. Yeah, great. Likewise, very much, so, very much the same for me as well. And I know that you and I both believe that uh, as a leader, one of your most important roles is to bring out and leverage the, the skills, the talents, what you call the gifts of your people. So you don't need to convince me of that, Ian, but I know there are a lot of other leaders who perhaps don't realize how important that is. So can you talk about that uh, you know, specifically, like why is it so important to tap into the, the power of your team? And also, what, what do you think's changed now that maybe makes this more important than perhaps it ever was for leaders? Well, they're, they're um, top questions to kick off with, Gahan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you'd be the case. I don't know a leader who isn't time poor. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that, that I suggest to people is if you want to have more time and more energy, then you need to help other people to be as, as good as they can be because at the end of the day, that will save you time and energy. You know, it's interesting when I when I survey people before I work with, with organisations, I ask them how much time are they currently investing in what, what would be people issues? You know, what, what, are the, what are the challenges that you have that are to do with people? And the average now from, from doing this for almost 25 years is people tell me 25%. Mm. So in other words, 25%, that's the average that they're spending trying to solve people problems. So I then asked the people, well, how would it be if that was less than 5%? And of course, everyone is over the moon, wants to know how. Well, one of the answers is you've got to help people to bring their best to their work on a more consistent basis. Mm. The end result is you'll have less problems and therefore you'll have more time. It seems, if I can challenge you on that, Ian, that I think another approach, which is the one that's all too common, is to say, look, I'll just tell them what to do and all they've got to do is to do it. So rather than trying to spend all the time and the effort and investing all your resources in getting them to bring the best to work, what about that other approach where you just go, no, I'll just tell them what to do and they'll do it and that'll save me the time? Well, I think that that was a way that might have worked 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was the way of the Industrial Revolution, you know, where, you know, Henry Ford's, you know, we don't pay to think, we pay to do. Mm. Uh, I think those days are gone, particularly for people under the age of 35. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if you tell them what to do, they're likely to put a finger up in front of you. (laughs) You know, they're they're not interested in being told what to do 
they're more interested in being asked what to do and how would they do it. So, you know, you can, I, th- I think you can tell uh, a great leader not by the answers they give but by the questions they ask. And so when you hear someone goes to a leader and says, what am I going to do about this, and the boss tells them what to do, for me, that's a very old style of leader, that's, they're, and they're gradually becoming dinosaurs. The, the real leader, the modern leader, when, it, when they're asked, what am I going to do about this, the real leader says, well, what do you think we should do? Which is a very different approach, because m- most people already know what to do. They're just looking for reassurance. And so I'm looking for, and a lot of my work is to help leaders to ask better questions and forget about trying to have all the answers. You know, because as a group of people, we've got the answers. Uh, it's uh, wisdom is not in not not the uh, domain of of uh, leaders. I think it's the domain of everyone. And a leader's role is to help everyone to bring their the best out of out of themselves. As a consequence, you know, we all do better, uh, and we and we let, we can let let go of this idea that you know we're the we're the givers and takers of wisdom because we're not. And you would you would know, Gan, of course, with the, you know your knowledge of the internet that you know people people have already searched for everything possible before they before they come to you, and that happens as much inside a business as it does you know doing doing research as a customer. I mean, it was interesting, uh, Gihan. I, I was actually asked this this morning um, by a client, um, and about about 20 i think it was it's about 21 years ago i was addressing a group of ceos and i declared to them that management was dead mm-hmm. in the in the sense that you know we can't manage people not not anymore we can lead people and what we need to do is manage the policies the procedures the processes you know the the systems around what we do but the idea of managing people, I declared 21 years ago, as being a dead idea. Mm. And and in that room that day, I was asked, well, what's the difference between leadership and management, which is a common question. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I, I def- defined it then, mind you, it came from, from my heart in that moment. I had to rush back to the hotel and write it down, so I remembered it. <laughs> 21 years ago but but it has i've only modif- i've only changed one word in the two definitions since that time and it stood my clients in very good stead and so the definition i define leadership as the art of inspiring people to bring everything remarkable that they are to everything that they do i define management as the practice of making it simple for people to bring everything remarkable that they are to what they do. Now, the word I've changed, 21 years ago, I had the word science, and I've mm. since changed, changed that to the word practice because there is science involved. But fundamentally, leadership is an art. It's about inspiring people. Management is a practice that makes it easy for people to bring their best to their work. And mm. as I say, I've got no reason, having now worked with, more than a thousand leaders in over 40 countries my definition has stood the test of time it's not that my definition is important because but it's because it's about people applying the principles in their own way mm-hmm. but i think fundamentally leadership's an art and management's a practice yes and i know that uh, having known you for more than a decade ian everything that you do completely resonates with that and i, I follow i follow pretty much everything you do ian whether it's uh, youtube videos or your blog posts which you're 
blogging regularly, uh, some of your other social media posts, and I know that that's come through every time. Every time I see that, I can I can see that even if you don't say that and you don't state it, it's very much the underlying foundation of everything that you speak about. And in fact, I was looking at one of your blog posts recently, and you 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 said something that I think some people would see as quite challenging and controversial. And you said that the number one role of real leadership is enhancing people's gifts your own and those of the people around you and again i'm 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 in line with that i agree with that i'm very much on board with that but isn't that quite a strong statement here to say that's number one i can just imagine people saying really uh, what about things that leaders are supposed to be in charge of like vision and strategy and direction and maximizing shareholder value and governance and all those other important things uh, how can you say that number one is about enhancing people's gifts well, I guess there's a couple of ways to look at this. I think those things that you mentioned, they are functions. I see most leaders as having several several roles, and I think each of those things are functions of some of those roles. But the number one role is to help people to identify, we'll call it their, their remarkableness, and help them to bring that to their work. And, and there's a lot of evidence about this. I mean, if people want to read the evidence, they should read a book called The Talent Masters mm-hmm. by Bill Conaty and Ram Charan because that provides some of the research, uh, both academically but, but more importantly, real-world evidence. In my own experience, it, it goes back to um, many years ago, I was the president of a cricket club and the coach was uh, – a gentleman by the name of Terry Jenner, who people would know mm. universally as TJ. Well, he, he, he became my best friend, and um, as you, you may know, he, he passed um, in May 2011. But Terry was, um, at the time of his, his death and for a long period prior to that, he was the preeminent spin bowling coach. And for Gian, I know you're a great cricket fan like mm. myself, but for those who may be listening and may not know cricket, um, cricket, um, you know, there's bowlers and there's, there's, and there's batsmen. And Terry was the coach of arguably the greatest bowler of all time in Shane Warne. Mm-hmm. And Terry believed his role was not to coach Shane, but rather to be a mentor of his. He believed that Shane had a gift, in Shane's case, to spin the ball more accurately and more deceptively than perhaps anyone else who's ever lived. Terry believed that was his gift, and his job was to enhance it. And Terry and I spent... Uh, hours and and then over years uh, talking about this concept. And in the early 90s, I began to apply this in my business. When I'd work with people, I'd spend time helping the the, the leader to identify their own unique talents, things that they were born with um, as well as things that they've learned. And, you know, there's a number of methodologies that obviously can be used to do that. And I saw... uh, in the very first assignment and in many assignments um, since, that when people really understand their uniqueness and their, and their gifts, which is just another word for talents, and they're enabled to bring those to their work on a consistent basis, then what I've seen over you know, more than 20 years of practice is that that's where high performance sits. And if you talk to any elite um, sports people, in team sport, individual sport, they mightn't describe it in this way, but the same methodology as is at play. So that's a really interesting perspective, Ian. And, uh, thank you for sharing a cricket analogy because I get that. But you, <laughs> you look at someone like Shane Warne, and there's no doubt that on a cricket field he's remarkable. 
And yes. another one of the things that you do say, because I've read a lot of your writing, is that you see everyone as remarkable. And I wonder, is that really possible or is it just when you look at, as you said, the elite sport, sports people, the people who actually get to the top, they have to be remarkable to get there. But what about an ordinary workplace, an ordinary organization, not one of these big star organizations like Apple or Google who have the pick of the crop when it comes to recruiting people? Is it really true that everyone's remarkable or is it that there's some people who aren't and maybe even don't want to be seen as remarkable? They just want to do a job, get a paycheck, go home and um, use that as a way of doing other things with their life? Well, I think there's definitely a, a don't want to be place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's people like that. But what I'm talking about, um, first of all, we need to look at just just the, by virtue of our birth, each and every one of us is remarkable. When I was researching the Changing What's Normal book, Gihan, I discovered that somewhere between 80 and 100 billion people have walked planet Earth. As far as we know, there's never been a duplicate. (laughs) So just by virtue of our birth, we're all remarkable. And it's even more remarkable when you think of it in the sense that males produce about 500 billion sperm cells in their lifetime. Women produce less than 500 eggs, and most of the sperm never reaches an egg. Mm-hmm. So just, just the idea of being alive is remarkable. Now, what happens, life happens, and people forget they're a one-off. And people need inspiring, reminding, and sometimes persuading that they're a unique, one-of-a-kind being of the kind who's never lived before. Now, some people don't want to know about that, but what I'm finding, I guess when I first started, you know, a long time ago doing this work, I would say maybe 2% of the population were interested in the the kind of conversation we're having. Now, it's probably 25, 30% of the the equation. Sure, there's a whole bunch of people who just want to do the job and go home, as you say. Now, again, I was fortunate enough as a young man I left school with, um, well, my, my reports at Ian has a sense of humour. Unfortunately, it didn't say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, the only reason I got a job was because of family connections. And then by chance, I got an interview with, with a bank. Um, and when I got to the interview, um, it lasted three minutes. And the guy said to me, there's no way on God's earth I'll give you a, give you a job, son. I was 17 years old. Um, but... Uh, and I, at that time, I said, well, look, I'm not going to beg, but if you give me a chance, I won't let you down. Mm-hmm. And long, long story short is he hired me. Mm-hmm. And he became my first mentor, and he had a philosophy that I was so fortunate to learn in my, my very first you know, role in the corporate world. And I later discovered it came from Goethe, the, the German mm-hmm. uh, philosopher and writer. So this is, this is you know, about 180 years old, this philosophy. But Goethe said, if we see man as he is, he gets worse. But if we see man as he can be, he gets better. Mm-hmm. And my, my first boss taught me that. He said, I didn't see the rat bag who was before me the other day. I saw who you could become. And I, I tell you, it, it was – I get emotional every time I think about mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. – what I learned was it was about who I could become, not who I was. And it stood me in, in, in such good stead that, you know, four years later I was his boss. 
and and so on. You know, so I was fortunate in in my um, early working life that I had a mentor who understood that it's not who we are right now that matters; it's who we can become. And if you see people for who they can become, that remarkable one of a kind human being that each of us is, you have a different attitude towards the the person. And and a lot of leaders see people as they are, not as they can become. And that's why they're in trouble. Yeah, and that's actually just a change in perspective, isn't it? It doesn't mean that you have to give them a different title or a new job description or move them to a different department or change their reward structure. It's just as a leader looking at this person differently. That's right. And so I say, you know, see yourself as remarkable and become who you mm. see. Mm. And then see everyone else as remarkable because you never know what might happen. They might become what, what they're capable of becoming. And what I'm seeing is increasingly people want more meaning in their work. They want more fulfillment in their work. They don't want a, a dull, boring job. In fact, I, I've even gone so far as to uh, write about this, Gann. I don't believe people have got jobs anymore. People have roles. And within those roles, there's jobs. And I know in my in my I've got many roles in in my life. Some of them, you know, and there's jobs within each of those roles. And some of those jobs I, I really don't like doing, but I know I've got to do them. But for you know, I'm fortunate. Probably eighty percent of my work, I love doing it. And and to help people to do what they love in the service of people who love what they do, which is um, a fabulous line from Stephen Farber from the book uh, The Radical Leap. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the quest. You know, we all can do things. We, we will or won't do them, but high performance is in the space of doing what we love and real high performance is doing what we love in the service of people who love what we do. And anyone can get there. Sure, as you say, some people are not willing, but that doesn't take away the fact of what they could do if they wanted to. Mm, as you say, the the shift has changed from maybe 2% who are, who are willing and really enthusiastic about it to about 25%. And that's growing, isn't it? And, and you mentioned the Gen Ys earlier, Ian, and there's so many people now who do amazing things outside the workplace, whether it's online or in the social space. And and yet, when you put them into, into their workplace, there's so many workplaces that just say, um, okay, leave all that great stuff, leave all those gifts at home. Because this is what your job description is. Here's a task for this week and today, and just go ahead and do it. And you know, rather than uh, and the client I was with today, Gihan, what I was focusing, uh, helping the people with in the in the in the group was looking at role clarity statements, not job descriptions. Hmm. Looking at relationships, not tasks. Appreciating that relationships and tasks, like leadership and management, are two sides of the same coin, but they're different. And the perspective is if, you, if you're focused on the relationships and you're keeping the tasks in harmony, then it'll work. If you're just focused on the task or you're just focused on the relationships, it won't, it won't work either, either way. Mm. The two have got, you know, it's like, it's like life's full of so many opposites competing for the territory. And, and I believe that, that, that the trick is to look at opposing forces and find a way to have them operating in harmony. I mean, the Chinese have known this for thousands of years, of course. They called it yin and, yin and yang. Uh, and it's, so, that, you know, none of what we're talking about is new. What, what is new is the way people look at it. And, and I think there are too many stuck in an industrial revolution way of looking at things, and that is that we're not human beings, we're cogs in a giant machine. Well, I think the machine metaphor is over 
for organisational life. It's now more like a farm. Uh, it's more about, you know, nurturing people, helping people to grow, uh, looking at things in a different, in a different way. And, and those that are still stuck in the Industrial Revolution mindset, I think, are the next dinosaurs. It's interesting when you look at books like Good to Great, which I think is a great book, In Search of Excellence, many other great books, most of the companies written about in those books no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that says to me there's something fundamentally wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with the, with the books. It's, I love both, both books, um, but the, I think the facts are that the way we operate in the world, the way we used to operate in the world, is now out of date and out of touch. And we now live in a, you know, a, a high-tech, high-touch world and, and we've, got to, we've got to take a look at how we treat human beings within that context. As you say, Guillen, I think uh, you know, the internet has changed um, everything, uh, but particularly your business. And yes, the internet has changed everything, but I believe there's a resurgence about what it means to be human. And when you put that with high, high technology and magnificent technology, that's where the magic is, in my, in my opinion. Yep, and I agree as well, Ian. I think the internet really connects things, and we generally think of the internet as connecting computers, but really what it does is it connects people, and it just makes people more important than, than ever before. Yes, indeed. So, so let's look at some practical things, Ian. So we've talked a lot about changing perspective and thinking differently about people and what their potential could be. What, what do you need to do in practice? What practical things do you need to do to, well, first of all, to identify and then develop and tap into people's gifts? Well, I, I think, I mean, what I've been talking about, I, I've described everything we've talked about so far as maverick thinking, you know, because I think the people that have changed the world have all been mavericks. You know, they've been mm -hmm. the dissenters, the uh, the contrarians, you know, the radicals. The label doesn't really matter, but it's it's, first of all, thinking differently. And so that's, that's the start. And I think, I think then that thinking needs to become an intention that we're actually going to do things differently. And then we start to explore what that means behaviorally. Uh, and so, you know, the first place is to think differently, see people differently, and then explore what does that mean, you know, behaviorally. Um, so the, I think that's the place to, to start. And I often in my work start with, with the leader. I mean, mo most of my work, certainly at the beginning, is one-on-one. -on -one. It's working with the leader on how they could change their behaviour in order to live their new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And you can start with, you know, a whole bunch of little things, that, you know, how you greet people in the morning, you know, it can be as simple as that. Um, how you... Um, Conduct yourself in a meeting, you know, uh, can be another way. It's look, it's looking at the everyday things that we do, and looking at how do we do them with our new way of thinking. Now, what often happens, for example, in if you take, you know, meetings are the bane of most leaders' lives. Mm. What happens when we change our thinking about meetings and we change our thinking about humans? We end up having less meetings. We and we end up having. When we do have meetings, they're more productive. We end up having uh, better informal conversations, what I would call more candid conversations, because we're having a, we're looking at people differently. We're thinking about ourselves and about other people um, differently. And f obviously, for every, for everyone, it's different. But it, it's about looking at what does this mean? What does this change of thinking mean behaviourally? And 
another example that, that I often see, um, when, a, when a problem happens in an organization, what most people do is they solve the problem, which returns everything to normal or the status quo. So one of the things that I help people to, to do and teach people to do is when you have a problem, rather than solve it and go back to where you were, think about how you can innovate and go somewhere you've never been, which is what I would call changing what's normal, which is mm. just three words for the one word innovation. Because we've got, we've got a, you know, we've got a problem solving world, you know, particularly the, you know, us males, we, we, you know, we want to fix it, even, if, even when it's not broken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so when a problem happens, I say to people, let's not go back to where we were. Let's look at changing what's normal and go where we've never been because that's innovation. And you can do that in so many ways um, in organizational life. There are at least, you know, um, there's something happens every 10 minutes in most organizations that could be done differently with this new thinking in mind. And it would take away so many of the of the problems that that have a lot of organisations under siege these days. Yeah, and that that is interesting, again, Ian, because uh, if you if all you do is fix the problems, that's great. You're back to the status quo, but the world's moved on around you, and there'll be other people who have innovated, whereas all you've done is stuck a bit of sticking plaster on it and fixed the problem. In- indeed, and uh, you know, one of the ways that I do this with people is that I ask them. You know, who are the mavericks, the radicals, the dissenters, um, the contrarians? You know, who are, who are the people that they've read about, thought about, or who do they admire? Now, a lot of people say Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. for example. So for those people who've identified with me in previous um, conversation, I ask them in that moment, well, what do you reckon Steve Jobs would do if he, if he was faced with this dilemma? Because that's a way of helping them to think think differently and then act act differently. Because everyone's got um, heroes, and they're usually someone who's radically different to them. Because it's a, it's a it's a mirror image of who they want to be. And so that's a, that's an, an easy way that, that you can just look at things differently. And what all, all, all I really do is help leaders to look at situations differently and change what's normal which, as I say, is just my phrase for innovation. And quickly you can get a lot of traction um, because you don't go back to the status quo, you go to somewhere you've never been. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, most of my work at the start of work one-on-one, it's helping people to do what they they know they should because most people already know what to do. They're just not doing it because they're shackled by all many of the things we've talked about. And so you get people doing what they know they should. Now, what I find... Uh, without exception, and, and this applies now for me, uh, this is over a 1,000 individuals that I've worked with. There's never been one exception. When people do what they know they should, they get into a space of discovering what they don't know that they must do, and that's where the magic is. If you, if you do what you know you should, what happens is it's almost, I, don't, I, I tell my clients, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I do know it's going to happen. And it's often a surprise to me as much as it is to them. They do what they know they should and something happens and all of a sudden they discover something that they didn't know that they should be doing and that changes everything. And you couldn't have seen that until you took that first action, could you? And that's your point. That's the point. We're blind to it. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And often I have to say to people, you know, you really have to trust me, not in the sense that I'm right, but trust me in the sense that I've seen this often before. I know if we follow these steps, 
you know, and you've got to follow the principles and the steps in your own way, I tell my people. And this is probably the difference between me and you and lots of people out there who are consultants or whatever. I mean, there are lots of consultants out there, again, they've got solutions looking for problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not one of them and I don't believe you are either. Um, I rather go on a journey with people where they discover their own solutions because they own them more. And, and therefore, their, their lives and their businesses are en enriched in more because it wasn't something they were told to do. It was something they discovered themselves that they should do. And that's, that's a very powerful way um, to learn uh, in my experience. Sure, there are processes and steps to follow, but you've got to do it in your own way. And I've never known an instance where someone who was really disciplined about this and, and started doing what they know that they should be doing that they previously weren't, at some point in time, they discover something that they haven't been doing, that they must do, and the consequences are so profound that not only does it change their business, it changes their lives. Or sometimes, the other way around, it changes their lives and then their business. And you said, Ian, that you worked with over a thousand people in, in, you know, over, over many years, and I'm sure that many of those people that you've worked with are leaders who are in organizations that perhaps aren't as enlightened as as we've been discussing. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, with those sort of leaders, in order to make the sort of changes we've been talking about, do you think that they need to move to a different organization or is it possible for them to do work within their own team, even if the organization culture doesn't support the sort of things that we've been discussing? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, because I think you, you never know who is going to be influenced. I think it's, it's the attitude that really starts it. I mean, there are lots of leaders out there who are trying to change people mm -hmm. and they haven't yet learned that none of us want to be changed. We're prepared to change, mm -hmm. but, but we're not prepared to be changed, which is why carrot and stick or being told what to do kind of leadership no longer works, uh, you know, as effectively as the kind of leadership uh, we're talking about. So I think definitely, and I've seen this uh, uh, instances where, you know, just a few people do it, and because it's so amazing when it's done well, other people can't help but take notice, and often that leads to, to other things. Now, sometimes it, sometime it doesn't. You know, there are, there are some stubborn people out there who even when they see magic happening somewhere else don't believe it can happen to them, mm -hmm. so they, so they poo-hoo it. Mm -hmm. And I always uh, recommend, and in my own work, I would never, ever start trying to work with a whole organization at once. I would prefer to start with one team and, you know, see what happens because change is scary for people uh, only because of the way they've experienced it in the past. And so you, I think you've got to start small. And as Margaret uh, Mead, I think it was, once said, you know, um, it only takes a few people to change the world. It's, you know, it's... That's the way it's always been. I forget, I forget her exact words. Um, and I think that's the case. And, and, and when people see what is possible, most people are at least prepared to take a, take a look at it. And I'm seeing that, um, you know, more than more. But I, I always recommend, you know, start small. In, in my case, um, I very much work with the science of quantum leaps. I know you do too, Gihan. Um, and most people see a quantum leap as a big jump. Mm. It's a, it's actually only a, a very tiny uh, thing, but it, but it, what what it, what it actually is is a is a jump from here to there. Yeah, that's right, and it's like that change in perspective, isn't it? It's uh, as you say, it's not a gradual shift. It's saying, okay, all I need to do is think differently, and suddenly things change. That's that's a quantum leap. And, and it's a, I, that's what happened to me when I learned that my boss was teaching me the philosophy of Goethe. 
I, I actually made that that very first moment that sunk into my heart and mind. I made a leap from one way of thinking to another way of thinking in an instant. Mm. Now it wasn't. It was only a tiny thing at that time. It took a, a lot of years of practice to, to to make it work. And so you go from one quantum leap to the next one to the next one, and so on. So it's just a series of tiny steps. The thing is that they're jumps from from what is to what can be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Ian, I know you've worked with a lot of people over the years, and I know there'll be a lot of people who will want to get in touch with you, talk to you, work with work with them and for you to also work with their teams and their people. What's, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? And also, who are the people that you most like to work with? Well, look, I, I as a general rule, most I suppose 80% of my clients would be business owners or executives who have more than 10 employees. Mm-hmm. That's about 80%. But I also work with entrepreneurs who are just starting out who believe they'll have employees, you know, down the track. Uh, but generally it's people that have got employees, but it can be people that, you know, are just starting out and, and, and don't really know this, you know, this business of leading leading people because uh, it, it does take a, a lot to learn. Uh, people can find out more just by going to my website, which is ianberry.biz, B-I-Z, and there's a, a lot of information there. They click on the on the tailored leadership mastery programs tab, takes them wherever they need to go. Because that's mm. that's what I, what I believe is that everyone who wants to master leadership needs a mentor. And so my role is to work with people who want to master the, you know their own lives and their own destiny. And, and of course that comes back to our early discussion. And this was um, Terry's belief with Shane. Terry was the mentor. Shane was the master. And mm. I very much. I very much see my clients as the master. I'm the mentor. And so it's people who who genuinely in their heart of hearts want to master their self-leadership, their leading for others and leading for change. Uh, I, I'll work with anyone who genuinely wants to, to, to master. And it is about their own journey of self-mastery and that leads to being able to lead for others. I think leadership is something we do for others. It's not something we do to people. Mm. It's for them. So that's why I say leading for others. And then that often flows on to leading for, leading for change. So if, you, if anyone who wants to master that journey, you're already a master. My job is to be the, the mentor who will go with you, which is the traditional uh, meaning in the ancient Greek of what a mentor is. It's to go with you on a journey from where you are to where you'd like to be. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian. I know that in that in this half hour we've had, uh, you've just shared so much. And as I said right at the start, you've got that real gift of being able to distill some really powerful ideas into into their essence and just share them in a very concise way with your with your wisdom and your insight. Um, do you have any Do you have any last words? Any parting words that I that you want to leave people with? There's there's one obvious one that is um, see yourself as remarkable mm. and and become who you see. Great, Ian Berry. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Gihan. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. 
And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, check out my speaking topics at gihanperera.com. You can also find out about my mentoring programs if you're interested in one-on-one work for yourself or your teams. And I also run a membership site for leaders to help with creating an online footprint, for marketing your business, for getting things done in a chaotic world, and for delivering more magnetic messages. You can find out more at egurus.info. That's E-G-U-R-U-S dot info. And if you do want to engage with me in other ways, again, go to gihanperera.com, where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and webinar series. They're all free, and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of the individuals in your organization, your team, and, of course, your own potential as well. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to the iMatter Podcast. To subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit iMatterPodcast.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike. Thank you.